First Peter chapter five, and we are going to read together verses one through four. First Peter five, verses one through four. I will tell you an easier text than I'm used to preaching on for a few months. First Peter five, one through four. Because this is the word of God, you are the people of God on the Lord's day. If you are able, would you please stand to hear God's word? The apostle Peter writes, as he is carried along by the Holy Spirit, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Let me say that again. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, if you come to First Baptist Powell on a regular basis, you know that we have been in an expositional series in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been in an expositional series in the book of Deuteronomy, and that is typical for us. It has been typical in this church for decades, far before my time here, that is, the steady diet of the word of God is offered through verse by verse exposition in particular books of the Bible. And while I still intend to return to Deuteronomy, you'll be glad to know we're not gonna cut you off there at Deuteronomy 21. Some of you I say will be glad to know, perhaps others of you, I don't know, don't shout anything at this point. We will be returning to Deuteronomy within the next few weeks. Breaking from Deuteronomy for Easter and then last Lord's Day, having the privilege of hearing Hunter preach the word of God to us, gave me the opportunity to consider whether I desired to plug in a short series. And I will tell you, that's somewhat of an MO for me. When I have a, a break or a standard reprieve, a natural reprieve in an expositional series through a book, I will oftentimes just insert something that has been heavy on my heart or something that I intended to address at some point in a sermon series, perhaps even that year. And so that's what happened here. This was unplanned about three or four weeks ago. It has been planned, just didn't know when. And then Easter and Hunter preaching last Lord's Day gave the opportunity for this. And so the result is a two or three perhaps, series on church leadership broadly, but in particular, church elders. So it's been my desire to address the issue of church eldership, and I'll give you a few reasons for doing that here in just a second, but that's, that's what we're doing beginning today, and we will 
the Lord permits to do this again next Lord's Day, I will tell you at this stage, it's a two-part series. Uh, but I do know that two-part series tend to turn into three-part series. And so I don't know, we'll see. But next Lord's Day, I do intend to still be in this series. But before we get into 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, what I'd like to do is give you a few reasons that really did inform why I chose to do a series on church elders. Let me give these to you just so that you understand that there really is a madness to my method, okay? First of all, every one of you leads in some form or fashion. Every single one of you is called to lead by God in some form or fashion. This is just the nature of human experience. It's integral to human experience. And it's inherent in God's good creation. In fact, we see this in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve actually are entrusted with leadership over creation. We come into this world, as it were, under human leadership as infants, don't we? Dependent on parents to care for us. And so this is just part and parcel of what it means to be human. That is to be under the leadership, ultimately, of course, of a benevolent and sovereign God who exercises authority through by means of human agents. And we are some of those human agents. And so all of us exercises leadership to one degree or another. And the flip side of that, and we've already alluded to it, is all of us, every one of us is under leadership to one degree or another. In fact, I oftentimes joke about this. Perhaps, you've, I, perhaps I've done it even from the pulpit. I don't recall. But even as, as a senior pastor, I'm so privileged to be the senior pastor of this church. I still, I still am under congregational authority. God's authority exercised by means of the congregation. I'm still under the authority of the plurality of elders. I have the sacred privilege of, of losing votes. And so there are times even when people have come to church and they've said, well, you know, I don't like this about the church. And I've said, well, you know, I've got a list of things I don't like about the church as well. And I'm the senior pastor. And in God's goodness, that will be the case as long as I'm alive and ministering. It will be the case. And it needs to be the case. Every one of us is under God's gracious authority, but that gracious authority is exercised by means of human agents. And all of us, of course, have the privilege of exercising authority in various ways and in various relationships. So that's one. Two, I desire through this short series to further equip you as a congregation with a biblical framework to look for and nurture the right qualities both in our current and in our future leaders. Okay, so this is, this is one way, one contribution that I have as, as senior pastor to continue contributing to our congregation as, as you all really are entrusted, as we're gonna talk moving forward, you're entrusted with identifying leaders, identifying the qualities of a leader, and then of course, at times even ordaining leaders. So I desire this series to be a contribution to further equipping you as a congregation who exercises that authority. And then third, there are other reasons, but I thought I'd mention three. I'm just drawn to triads, you know that. Third, it is my ambition that God would use these sermons to call some of you to humbly step forward for various leadership roles. 
including but not limited to the office of elder. In fact, if I could be frank, it's my ambition that all of you will more and more embrace your current or even potential future leadership roles in humility and dependence on the spirit of Christ through this series and and others. That's an ambition that I have. Uh, Some of you, doubtless, even concerning the office of elder, there may be some of you in the room, either today or next Lord's Day or depending on how long this takes us, the following Lord's Day, some of you, you know, may determine, of course, I'm not, you know, I'm not ready for the office of elder, some of the men in the room. But I do hope, if I, can I be frank? I do hope, actually, that every man considers how it is, by the work of the Spirit of God, he can become qualified as an elder to one degree or another. Because what we have, and we're not going to look at this this morning, what we have actually in these qualifications in the New Testament concerning elders, we really do have most of the time the portrait of a mature follower of Jesus Christ. We really do. Now there are some exceptions and we'll talk about some of those. Perhaps next week, perhaps the week week after. But that's, that's a desire I have that you would humbly and willingly step forward embracing God's call in your life to lead in various ways, not limited to the office of elder, but including that office potentially for some of you. All right, with this in mind, here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where we find the answer to three important questions regarding church elders. And these three important questions are what, how, and why. If you're taking notes, what should elders do? What should elders do? We could even say it this way. What is the fundamental responsibility of church elders? Secondly, how? How should elders do this? The apostle Peter doesn't simply tell us what it is that elders should do. He tells us how it is they ought to do it. And then finally, In addition to what and how, we find why. Why should elders do this? What is the motivation, the final and ultimate motivation for faithful elder ministry in the local church? And to one degree or another, we'll find that that motivation is the motivation for all followers of Jesus Christ, following the leadership of Christ as they seek to exercise their leadership in submission to his Well, before we get to our first question, I want to give you a little background. We've not been in Peter, and this is a topic that we've just jumped right into. And so I'm going to give you a little context and a little background, and then we'll turn to the what question in the text. And that context is introduced for us in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me, if you would. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now stop there. So many things we could say regarding the background of this concept, elder ministry, but throughout the New Testament, I want you to know that local churches are led by a plurality of elders, namely faithful men empowered by the Spirit of God to lead the people of God. And so Peter here in our context, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, refers to the elders, plural. And this is the case throughout the New Testament. And he refers to the elders, 
plural as the elders among you, namely among the congregation. And so this is important and it's nuanced perhaps in various ways at various times throughout scripture and throughout the New Testament. While elders carry unique responsibilities, and it is indeed the case that they carry unique responsibilities, they are not fundamentally distinct from the congregation. That's important to say. And I think actually this is a strength in our free evangelical or Baptist tradition as we interpret scripture. There was not in the early church, as I understand it, there was not this clerical divide between clergy and laypersons. That wasn't the case. Rather, the church was viewed as composed of members all of them, members who were gifted and therefore functioned in unique ways in service to the body of Christ. One of those gifts, one of those stewardships, one of those offices was the office of elder. And so elders, there was this tension, there really is throughout the New Testament, this is perhaps why there is some disagreement throughout church history regarding how this really does get fleshed out. But there is, on the one hand, this sense in which elders are indeed, as they lead under the authority of their benevolent God, and really the chief shepherd, as we're going to see in the text, of the church, they are leaders. And the congregation grants trust. And by the way, trust is a gift. It is a gift. I, I was considering even this week, You've given me a gift. Your presence today demonstrates the gift. So this leadership is a gift. Of course, it's given by the Spirit of God, but it's given by the Spirit of God through the congregation. And the elders are called to lead on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, they're called to lead as members of the congregation in submission to the way the Spirit of God leads through the gathered Congregation, the church. And so you find this even intimated in verse one. Additionally, as I said a moment ago, and I just want to highlight this for just a moment, you need to know that we find throughout the New Testament a plurality. And I said this a second ago, we're saying it again just so that we understand this. You find a plurality of leaders in each local church. And you find a plurality of elders in each local church. For example, toward the end of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, we read these words, Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Here's what Luke writes. And when they had appointed elders, now that's plural. When they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church, singular. You see? So elders were appointed in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So a single elder or a single pastor does not guide the church. Rather, God has orchestrated the government of his people to include a plurality of leaders. And may I just say, may I just say as, the, as someone who is privileged to be a leader in the local church and to be a leader here at First Baptist Powell, that plurality protects both the church and the leaders. It does. I heard just recently of someone who had been a pastor for many years and counseling a group of pastors and this particular pastor said something like this. He said, you know, you need a plurality because you need God to protect the congregation from you. And I thought to myself, amen. 
and amen. Various reasons why God instituted a plurality, but one of the reasons is, of course, to protect the congregation. But also to protect the leaders. Leadership is really a, a dangerous precipice. And this is why James warns even concerning teaching, let not many of you become teachers, for as such you obtain a stricter judgment. And so God in his mercy provides a a plurality. Of course, in our particular context, as we read the text of scripture, given in submission to the congregation to gather church, but a plurality of leaders that hold one another accountable. And I do, I have the privilege of, even yesterday, sitting with a group of men you've appointed. And perhaps I should say the spirit of God is appointed through you through the congregation. And that group of men, of course, they are so kind and they do defer to me from time to time as senior pastor, but they will outvote me. And they will lovingly look at me and caution me. I need it. I desperately need it. So I hope you see that. Plurality is a gift. It's a gift both to the leader and to the congregation. And so just to give you one more passage of scripture you could jot down, so many we could reference here and then we'll get on with it. Philippians chapter one, verse one. We preached through Philippians some time ago when I first arrived here at First Baptist Powell, but Philippians begins, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ. Now get that, to all the saints in Christ with the overseers and deacons, they don't take it that the overseers and deacons are distinct from all the saints. They're within all the saints. And in this case, overseer is used, and you'll find even throughout the New Testament, I think that this word overseer is just another way of referring to the same office, the office of elder. And again, nothing that I am saying in this series, nothing that I am saying contradicts what is referred to as a congregational church government in which final authority is exercised by Christ, and I'm gonna say it this way, through the gathered congregation, through the gathered church, because that's where the authority really does rest. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter five. I'm getting off a little bit here, but I think this is helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter five, the Apostle Paul is talking about a particularly difficult issue in the church of Corinth. And Paul says something outstanding and we find this consistently throughout scripture. He says, when you are gathered together, deliver such a person. And he's speaking, by the way, to the congregation. He's not speaking in that context to the elders. So it's the congregation who was to exercise this kind of final authority of course, under the authority of Jesus Christ. But exercise this final authority as the assembly. Why? Because God is uniquely present when God's people are gathered. And so it's God himself that's acting in mercy, in goodness, in authority through the gathered congregation. So keep that in mind. We believe, we hold to, if you like, categories, We hold to here at First Baptist Powell an elder-led congregational polity. That's our church polity. That's our church government. Indeed, we have elders that lead, but they do so from within the congregation. And finally, of course, with recognition that the final court of appeals is indeed the congregation before the Lord. All right, that's enough background, I think. And there's a part of me that didn't want to do that, but I thought, well, we're just diving right into this from Deuteronomy chapter 20. So I got to give a little background on this. 
So here Peter exhorts the elders of the congregation, beginning in verse two, now our first question, what? What should elders do? Look with me at verse two, the beginning of verse two in particular. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The fundamental responsibility of church elders is to shepherd God's flock. Pay particular attention, if you would, in the text that this flock is again, this flock is described as among you. The elder spends time among the people. Why? Because he is part of the people. He's a sheepy elder. He too is a sheep. He spends time among God's people as he leads God's people, recognizing, of course, that he really is fundamentally just one of God's people. And God is operating in mercy through him. Elders do not, I need to hear this, Perhaps you do as well. Perhaps our elders do as well. Elders do not serve as a kind of distant corporate level decision-making entity detached from the family of God. By the way, it's no accident that the primary image in the New Testament for the church is that of a family. That's the primary image and so there is this assumed intimacy that is experienced among all the members in the body of Christ, in the local church in particular. And elders even themselves view themselves as members of the family and they're operating within the family unit. They are among the people they are given the stewardship to lead. And the imagery of shepherding, I think really is the most compelling and pervasive imagery used throughout scripture, not simply for elder ministry, but for Christian leadership. And I'm gonna give you a little background on this to perhaps validate what I just suggested. Consider two of the most prominent leaders in the Old Testament, Moses and David. What were they doing when God called them? They were shepherding quite literally, weren't they? It's no accident. Consider Moses' staff that he uses consistently throughout his ministry. What kind of a staff would it have been? A shepherding staff. Throughout the prophets, God promises to provide his people with faithful shepherd leaders. For example, Jeremiah chapter three, verse 15. God says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So that imagery of shepherding is prominent throughout scripture. God himself, God himself is referred to as the shepherd of his people. Psalm 23, how does it begin? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Any Christian leader does well to remember this imagery. Any Christian leader. Our elders are not to be consumed as a result with tasks or projects, but with people. Amen. And if I, if I can be frank and vulnerable with you for just a moment, that is a challenge. 
It's a constant temptation to begin to believe that if you check off the boxes for the day, you've been successful before the Lord. But what I find in scripture concerning the calling, the sacred calling to lead God's people is that perhaps the most successful day is one in which no boxes were checked off, but people were cared for. I'm reminded of a story I once heard of a group of friends that went deer hunting. You know, you can't say this in every context. But we are in East Tennessee. You could have also said it in my previous context in Texas. But a group of friends that went deer hunting and on the trip, they decided to pair off for the day and reconvene later that evening at the cabin. When the time came to reconvene, all the hunters returned empty-handed except one who came trailing, carrying an eight-point buck. However, the other hunters noticed that he was alone. And so they asked the question, where's Harry? Harry had a stroke of some kind, he said. He's a couple miles back up the trail. You left Harry lying on the trail while carrying the deer. The man responded, well, I figured no one was going to steal Harry. Perhaps a lighthearted way of recognizing that misplaced priorities are dangerous. They're dangerous. And the elders must have proper priorities. I hope, you, I hope as you hear me preaching this series, I hope what you imagine in part is that your pastor is preaching to himself. Having proper priorities is tantamount to being a faithful leader of God's people. So God calls the elder to function as shepherd in the service and care of God's people above any other function. So get that. When you think of elder, think of shepherd. That's what an elder is, fundamentally, essentially. So the, fi- the primary responsibility, the what, if you will, of church elders is to shepherd God's flock. And we'll return to that, of course, namely the flock belonging to God. Let's consider our second question. How? How should elders do this? And Peter goes on to answer this for us. How should elders shepherd God's flock? Look with me at verses two and three. We'll begin reading again at the beginning of verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Notice, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter begins here by using a participle, figure of speech in Greek, that can be employed to talk about the means of something. Not always, but in this case, I think it is a participle, bit of a grammatical point for you, participle of means. And so we could translate this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you by exercising oversight. But then he goes on to talk about what it means to exercise oversight. What is the kind of oversight the Apostle Peter is calling these other elders to employ? Because if Peter learned anything through the ministry of Jesus, it was 
that leadership in the church was drastically different than leadership in the world. And he learned it the hard way. James and John learned it the hard way. The sons of thunder. All right, how about that? These are the two, by the way, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter nine, who in a Samaritan village refused to accept Jesus and accept his disciples. What did they say? Lord, would you have us call down fire from heaven to consume them? Right. What are you doing? Jesus, of course, with grace and compassion, rebukes them. So Peter has learned this. He's learned what Christian leadership looks like because he spent time with the leader, Jesus Christ. And leadership is only faithful to the degree to which it models itself after Christ. That's it. And so... He's unpacking this. How do you do this? By exercising oversight. Well, what does that look like? And then Peter indicates other ways this is to be done through a series of, of couplings, we might even, might, might even call them. That is what is not intended and what is intended. You know, this is a, this is a teaching strategy. Teachers in the room will understand this when you're teaching a, a class. You know, sometimes it is helpful not simply to tell them what you do mean, but what you do not mean. Right? I am not saying this And I know that when I use this word, you're going to go there. So let me eliminate this as a possibility. This is not what I mean by exercising oversight. This is what I mean by exercising oversight. And that's what the apostle Peter does. Verse two, three couplings. Look at those with me briefly. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And by the way, that as God would have you is an interesting translation. In the Greek, it's just simply according to God. It fascinates me. I think there's more going on in that prepositional phrase than just as God wants you to, but rather according to God's calling and what's appropriate as a leader. So the elder must not be forced or coerced to serve the congregation as elder. And we should say this about any position of leadership. The leader who is coerced is typically not a very faithful leader. Timid. We find this actually with the first king of Israel, Saul, who is found hiding in the baggage when it's time to lead God's people. That should have been one of the signs. Maybe this won't be the king we really need. And so the leader must not, the elder must not be coerced. He must embrace this calling willingly according to the pattern given to him by God through Christ in Scripture. And then verse two again, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Well, not all elders are paid. Some are. Some were paid in scripture. Some are paid in this church. Here at First Baptist Powell, we have staff elders and non-staff elders. Our staff elders are senior pastor and associate pastors and our non-staff elders are our other. We could refer to them as pastors or other elders. However, the elder, all elders must resist the temptation to be motivated by financial advance. 
And it's interesting to me because I don't think the apostle Peter is simply interested in proscribing being motivated by financial gain. I think it's more than that. I think what he's getting at here is guard against any other inappropriate motivation for selfish gain. So this indeed includes finances. But I think it also includes or at least implies a warning against pursuing leadership to secure other forms of selfish gain, like influence. I think the Apostle Peter would say, this is an awful motivation for elder ministry. I want to really influence these people. Power, the hunger, insatiable hunger for power So on the one hand, the elder must be willing, even eager to serve Christ and to serve Christ's people in this way. But as we're going to see, that service actually translates itself into a gain that looks initially like a death and a gain actually that waits for a future reward, not a present reward. Verse three, another couplet, not domineering over those in your charge. Now he really gets at some of the problems here, not domineering, but rather being examples to the flock. So the kind of leadership and oversight instructed here is not bullying. It's not asserting one's will over those under the leader's care. In fact, notice that this kind of oversight is described as being examples to the flock. And then isn't there a part of us as we imagine what it means to lead, isn't there a part of us that wants to say, no, Peter, but you're not really getting at the point of leadership. But for the apostle Peter, as he's learned from the Lord Jesus Christ, he was most impacted as he spent time in Christ's presence. And so this do as I say, not as I do, it's nonsense. And it's an empty form of leadership. Rather, the best form of leadership the leader can provide, the Christian leader can provide, is an exemplary life for the glory of Christ. If I could take a bit of an aside here concerning parenting, because as I mentioned, this series does apply to all of us as those who are called to lead. It breaks my heart to hear parents say things like, I want to get my kids in church when they themselves aren't willing to commit their lives to the body of Christ. And I do every time, I want to say, don't you know though, your lack of commitment is much louder than your words in the heart of your children. You want to impact your children for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, it will mean speaking the truth in love. Indeed, it will mean sharing the gospel. Indeed, it will mean opening up the word of God and and doing your best, submitting to the spirit, just teaching your children through scripture. Yes, indeed, that is your calling as a parent not just for pastors, but all parents. But the most impactful way 
You can move your children as it were and call them by means of their affections to love and serve Jesus Christ is by giving them a model, not a perfect model, only Christ can provide that, but giving them an exemplary model, a faithful model worthy of imitation. And this is really what parenting is. This is what elder ministry is. We're saying And whether we say it or not, it's felt and it's heard. We're saying, follow them as they follow Christ. That's leadership. Moreover, one of the most damaging things we can do as as Christians in positions of leadership is to refuse to acknowledge that we indeed have leadership. I'll never forget. And I won't tell you who it was. Then you'd be tempted to go listen to something that he wrote and I don't think it's something we ought to be listening to. Years ago, I don't know why, but it left an indelible imprint in my mind. When I was younger, before I came to know the Lord, there was a particular rapper that made the comment in an interview and I still remember it like it was yesterday. I must have been 10 years old. And, and this particular rapper made the comment after the one who was interviewing him said something like, you are, you are such an influential leader in the lives of so many young people. And I remember they you know, put the mic in front of this particular rapper and the rapper said something like, I'm not a leader. Don't follow me. And I remember even when I was 10 or 12 or however old I was, I remember thinking that doesn't make any sense to me. Because your position demands the call that goes out, follow me. You've got leadership, whether you recognize it or not. I knew that at 10 years old, I just sensed that I couldn't articulate it. Now I know it all the more. Dear brother, dear sister, one of the worst things you can do is to abdicate your leadership. Embrace it. Not because you're worthy, but embrace it because Christ is worthy. Embrace it because you trust the benevolence of a sovereign God who has placed you in this relationship, whether it be a mom or a dad, a grandpa or a grandma, a husband or a wife, a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a teacher throughout the week, an employer, whatever it may be. Trust that God and his kindness and his sovereignty and his benevolence has granted to you the stewardship of leadership. And if, he's indeed granted you that stewardship, he will empower you to serve him and to serve others. As an aside also, some of this this is all related, but I had so many thoughts that floated through my mind throughout the week concerning leadership. I don't know of any form of faithful Christian leadership as I consider 1 Peter 5 that disregards the will and perspective of the people being led. I mean, Peter says here, verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Don't force your will on those God has called you to lead. And so I even thought, even this week, I thought certainly the relationship between an elder and a congregation is different than the relationship between a father and and a son or a daughter or a husband and a wife. But even in these other relationships through which God calls us and some of us to lead, none of these relationships give us the opportunity to completely disregard the will of those God has called us to lead as a father of maturing children 
the decisions I make deeply impact my children. I want to hear from them. I want to know what they think, how they feel. I believe that God uses that to guard them from my leadership and to guard me from my leadership. As a husband to Tana, has God called me to lead my wife? Indeed. What does a leadership look like in that particular context? Well, it looks a lot like self-sacrifice, considering the ways in which God has uniquely gifted her to speak in to the decisions we have to make. I, I can't, I cannot imagine. I can't imagine leading Tana in a way that completely disregards her desires and her will. In fact, as I thought about that this week, I thought, I believe it was Pastor John MacArthur. I had the privilege of being at Grace Community Church while I was out at the Master's College years ago. Pastor John MacArthur once said that there is a difference between leading others and just going for a walk. And what he said was, you want to know if you're actually leading other people? Turn around and see if they're following you. And if they're not following you, John MacArthur said, all you're doing is going for a walk. You're leading no one. And I think these are important things to consider in light of what the Apostle Peter tells us here, not domineering. This is not the kind of leadership you see exercised outside the body of Christ. So in summary, let's summarize these couplets. How should elders shepherd God's flock? They should voluntarily... They should voluntarily and eagerly lead the congregation by being examples for them to follow. There's more to it than that, but that's what Peter wants to get at. They should voluntarily and eagerly lead the congregation by being examples for them to follow. Now, all of these characteristics, all of these ways God calls elders to lead the church, of course, directs us to a superior shepherd. In the text, the chief shepherd, you notice he's referred to in verse four, when the chief shepherd appears. That is to say, an elder is just an under-shepherd for a season and a day is coming when that elder or these elders will stand before Jesus Christ and Christ will call them to account. He will call us to account, not for the ways we shepherded the people belonging to us. Because those people don't exist, but for the ways we shepherded the people belonging to Christ. And so Jesus said in John chapter 10, how is it, how is it that we are to understand Christ's leadership? I am the good shepherd, he says in John 10, 11. And then he goes on to tell us how it is that he shepherds his flock. What does he say? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's leadership. Now, where in the world is that real leadership outside of the church? How are you going to lead today? I'm going to die for these people. What do you mean? You got to take them in a direction. I know that's the direction. 
The direction is self-sacrifice for their good, for future glory, because it images the Savior who laid down his life for the sheep. Friends, every single merely human leader, if I could say it this way, will fail you. Everyone. In fact, just to be frank with you, if I have not failed you yet, it is for one of two reasons. One, you just haven't known me long enough. Two, you don't know me at all. I will fail you, I promise you. Every single merely human leader will indeed fail you. No elder, no pastor can finally lead in the ways you need to be led. Why? Because every single one of these leaders is in the same predicament in which we all find ourselves. That predicament is what we call sin. Even the most mature follower of Jesus Christ, even the most exemplary of pastors, this side of glorious resurrection is beset with selfishness and sinful desires. But this is not the case with our chief shepherd. It's not the case with our final leader, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ bore our failures and the failures of his under shepherds as well. Bore our failures on the cross and rose in glorious power to reign and lead his people forever. And while indeed he does choose to lead through finite and even sinful leaders, he does that, we must never fail to recognize that Christ and Christ alone is our preeminent shepherd leader. And so if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, I implore you, I plead with you, trust in Christ All of your leaders in your life may have already failed you. If they haven't, they will. But Jesus Christ is the perfect leader. If that's where you are this morning and you'd like to know more about Jesus Christ, perhaps you have questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, consider staying around after the service and as you walk out of this room, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, just before you leave this building, there's a room called Crossroads. Go into that room and have a conversation. Have a conversation with the pastor who's gonna be in that room about what it means to embrace Jesus Christ in faith and what does it mean to follow this supreme and preeminent shepherd leader. Finally, as we need to wrap up. Why should elders do this? Why should elders do this? Look with me at verse four. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In Peter's context, the crown may refer to an athletic crown that one would receive in the ancient world for an athletic victory. It may refer to a military crown that one would receive for a military victory. It may be both. But the point here is all of those crowns fade over time because they're made of perishable material. Peter says when the chief shepherd appears, he's going to grant to you who were faithful leaders and faithful elders the unfading crown of glory. And I think, by the way, this is, this is how I read this and there are others who disagree and perhaps I'm wrong and you can walk away and say, you know, Pastor Perry, we like you, but you're wrong on this. And maybe I'll change by next week, I don't know. But I think actually here, Peter is referring to a unique reward for elders. 
And I think he's doing that for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is he's addressing elders in particular. But secondly, the language that he uses, the unfading crown of glory, it's different than the language of crown he uses elsewhere, the crown of righteousness, that is the righteousness of Christ, or the crown of life, namely eternal life. Here, the crown is described as glory, glorious. This appears to be a kind of unique reward given to the under-shepherds who have served faithfully under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And Peter knows. Peter knows that such a reward in the end really is the result of Christ's work through the elders. It really is. Christ is the chief shepherd. So what that means, First Baptist Powell, is that if you ever experience the privilege of being led, and I believe you have, by faithful men of God who are serving in submission to Jesus Christ, you can be confident that that faithful leadership actually comes from the chief shepherd through, Christ, through the men he has chosen, appointed by the congregation. And this is why the 18th century English Baptist pastor, Andrew Fuller, once wrote a letter to his friend, William Carey. Some of you have heard of William Carey. Referred to as the father of modern missions. Andrew Fuller wrote him a letter and in it he reminds his friend concerning the coming reward and the crowns that will be, will be received when Jesus Christ returns. It's a kind of imploring Carey to continue to be faithful. And Andrew Fuller writes these words, the crowns do not seem to fit our heads. And then he says, therefore, they must be cast at the feet of Jesus. Such are the feelings of my heart, the pastor says. Doubtless remembering Revelation 4, where it is the elders Revelation 4, it is the elders who are wearing crowns. But what are they doing with these crowns? They're taking them off. Because if I could use Andrew Fuller, they don't fit their heads. And they're casting them at the feet of the God who reigns on the throne into the Lamb. That's the privilege of elder ministry. The ultimate motivation for faithful under-shepherds is not anything that can be gained in this life. Nothing. The reward is future. So elders are called to labor, to lead, recognizing that ultimately Christ, the chief shepherd, leads his people. And the under shepherds are privileged to be used by Christ. And then rewarded in the end for what Christ did through them. That's gospel mercy. So why should elders labor to shepherd God's flock? In summary, because the chief shepherd will appear and he will appear for his sheep and reward those who were diligent to care for them until he returned. One of my heroes, we'll wrap up with this story. One of my heroes in the faith comes from the second century. I know that surprises many of you. A pastor named Irenaeus. Irenaeus pastored in southern Gaul or modern day France. And 
He pastored during a time when becoming a pastor did not grant you (laughs) prestige or retirement. Perhaps it didn't give you money at all. Being a pastor didn't give you much acclaim or popularity. In fact, when he signed up to be pastor, the church in Lyon and Vienne had just endured a severe and bloody persecution. This is known through various ancient documents. During that particular persecution, this is the second half of the second century, during that particular persecution, the beloved 90-year-old pastor and predecessor of Irenaeus, Pothinus, had died after having been drugged and pummeled before a bloodthirsty audience. Pastoral leadership granted to Pothinus that kind of a reward. Doubtless because he was pastor. So what did it mean then for Irenaeus to become pastor? In that moment, he'd been taking a letter to Rome and he was coming back. And what did it mean for them to call on him and say, by the way, you're going to be our pastor. Congratulations. (laughs) Not an office with a nice office chair. Not a large retirement, depending on how you define retirement. What did it mean? It meant that if persecution returned or continued, he would likely be the first to receive imprisonment and death. The kind of glory Irenaeus signed up for when he accepted the call to lead God's people in Lyon was a glory through self-sacrifice for the eternal health of the church. And although we can't be sure of this because it is just a tradition that's hard to substantiate, there's a tradition that claims that Irenaeus was eventually privileged and I'm using that language because it's the language the early church used. He was eventually privileged to suffer the same fate as his previous leader, Pothinus, in martyrdom. There's no higher calling than to be lowered even unto death in service to Christ and in service to the church through leadership. That's That's Christian leadership, church family. Let's pray. Christ Jesus, every one of us belongs to you. Our chief shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, Lord Jesus, you told us you had authority to lay it down. You had authority to take it up again. This authority you received from the Father. And by means of doing so, you rescued us. Moreover, you provided us with an example to follow. An example of what it meant to be Christian, but also an example of what it meant to lead in a way that is distinctively Christian. Would you give our elders? Would you give future elders? 
Would you give all church leaders here at First Baptist Powell, would you give all of us in the various ways in which you've called us to lead the privilege of being lowered? Even unto death in service to you and in service to the people purchased with your own blood. We pray this with confidence, not in our own abilities to lead, but in your ability and your faithfulness to lead through us. And in your name and for your sake, we pray together and all God's people said,